you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've got Bibles provided every week that we pray will be taken by one of you and used uh, to sort of introduce you to what Jesus is about and what it means to follow him and also to to guide you in your life as a Christian. If, If you're a new believer and looking for somebody to help you understand more about what the Bible teaches, we would love to, to walk that road with you and provide that for you. And you can just come and speak to me after the service, and we'd love to get you connected with somebody. We're going to be in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians as we move verse by verse through this letter. And this morning, we're going to talk about what you should do with your money. There, I said it. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what you should do with your money. Now, let me walk that back a little bit, all right? We are not launching a giving campaign this morning. We are not hurting as a church, trying to convince you to give more to our, to, so that we can make budget. By God's grace, that is not where we are, thanks to God's grace and to your generosity. And I'm not speaking to any one of you personally about your money and what you're already doing with it, because I have no idea, unless you've told me something. Uh, one of the, my favorite things about how our church operates is that there's really only a couple of people who see anything about who gives what, and I'm not one of them. It's, it's a, a very small group, and only they, they only know because they, somebody has to deposit it and make sure you get your tax letters at the end of the year. So this message about money is not a hobby horse. It's not in one sense self-interested for our church. We're talking about money this morning because when our practice is to go verse by verse through the Scriptures to take them as they come, to take whatever comes next, and to try to bring our lives into line with it. And we're studying a letter right now, an ancient letter by Paul to his friends in an ancient city called Corinth. Uh, a letter in one of the main purposes for which was to convince the Corinthians that they should be given more money than they were to support Christians who lived in another part of their world. So that's the text we've come to this week and next. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 is a, kind of a unit on its own. Some people even think maybe Paul wrote it separately from everything else and then plugged it into this letter because it was uh, sort of a standalone purpose, something that he was busily doing in all the churches that he visited in, that ancient, uh, in the ancient world. As he went place to place to place, one of the things he was doing was trying to convince these new Christians in these Greek and Roman cities to give money to support Jerusalem Christians who didn't have enough money to make ends meet. They were hungry, starving, they were were hard up. And Paul knew that. And one of the ways that he liked to, to teach new Christians about their unity with all other Christians everywhere was to try to convince them to give some of their own money to support people they didn't know from a place in the world they'd never visited, uh, who were made up of an ethnic and racial background that was very different from theirs. One of the most beautiful ways to picture the unity that we have in Christ is to support people in that way. And that's, that's what Paul's trying to do. He mentions this collection in other places, other letters that he wrote to other churches. Acts, the, 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 the book of the Bible that tells about Paul's journeys all around the world, t- teaching people about Jesus, talks about this collection in a couple of places. And then Paul's first letter to these folks in Corinth mentions it. At the end of that letter, he says, everybody, according to what you're bringing in, make sure you're setting aside some of your money each month as it, as it comes in so that you'll have something to give when I come back around and, uh, that I can take with me on to, to these Christians who are in need. That's where we've come in this letter. So in a sense, we talk about money this morning because Paul did. There's another sense, though, 
I mean, I spent all this time walking it back. This is not about you. It's not about any one of you. It's not about our church's situation. But in another sense, though, it actually is highly relevant to us personally, to our situation. Partly because how we use our money matters to God. It's a basic part of Christian discipleship. If you're interested in following Jesus this morning, wondering what's involved, one of the things you should know is that becoming a Christian is, is giving all of yourself over to this Lord, this master. That means not roping off anything about yourself, including your pocketbook from him and from what he values, from what's precious to him. It means bringing your whole life, including your money, to, into the place that, that, that what's precious to Jesus becomes precious to you too. It's relevant to us too because of where we live and when. Because we live in one of the most affluent places, one of the most affluent seasons of our culture uh, that's ever been known in all of history. But there's a gap between how, in general, American Christians use their money and the priorities or uh, values that American Christians have, profess to have. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but we're going to do it through Paul and what he says here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. What I want to do, so, so really you've got this, these two chapters, they go together. These, these chapter divisions were inserted later. Paul didn't have chapter divisions when he wrote this letter. And chapters 8 and 9 are all just one big unit. So it makes it a little tough to know where to break it off. We're going to spend two weeks on it. It makes it a little tough to decide where to break it off. And uh, I decided on Thursday to break it off at chapter 8 verse 24 and then I decided yesterday that I was going to break it off at chapter 8 verse 15. So I want you to disregard the outline I gave you in your worship guide. We're only going to be doing the first two points that I put in that worship guide and we're going to come back next week and pick up where I I leave off this week. And the way we're going to do this is to, to try to drill down on what Paul says about why we should give and what Paul says about how we should give. In the first chunk of this section on giving, his focus is on what giving uh, can, can look like when it's motivated by what God has done for us. Motivated not first and foremost by who we are and what we want to prove about ourselves, but, but by who we've become through Jesus, what's true about him in the way that he's loved us. We're going to focus on the motive for giving today, why we give. And then next week we're going to come back and look at what Paul says uh, through the second half of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9 about how we should give. All right, I want to begin by reading uh, what we're going to cover this morning. And I'm going to ask you, please, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 15, though we're going to focus mostly on the first nine verses this morning. This is God's word to us from 2 Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, 
See that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to, what I want to do from chapter 8 here, from the first, especially the first nine verses of chapter 8, is to pull out Paul, Paul's model of Christian generosity first, and then Paul's motive for Christian generosity. Paul gives us a model of Christian generosity first. Some people that he puts in front of the Corinthians to show them, here's what could be. And then the motive that he gives for, for what drives all true Christian generosity. What separates Christian generosity from lots of other generosities that are, that are out there. So first the model, then the, then the motive. Paul begins this note on generosity, you might say a little bit indirectly. I mean, if I didn't know better, I don't think this is what's happening. But if, if I didn't know better, I think Paul is being a little passive aggressive here. He doesn't come straight to the point. He doesn't jump right to his ask and try to push them to give money to this collection that he's taking. He actually starts with another group of Christians, another group of churches from their region and how those churches had responded to the need in Jerusalem. Before he asks for anything, in other words, he gives them a model of what is possible. Now, what I want to do here, what I want to do is walk you through what he says about these churches from Macedonia. I want you, I want you to make sure you notice all the details of this model. And then I'm going to circle back around and we'll talk about what Paul is doing here, why he's giving them this model. I think we've got to be very careful to get it right, make sure we know what he's doing and what he's not doing. So first, let's walk through some of these details. What, what, what is Paul showing the Corinthians about these churches in Macedonia? It's surprising at every turn. In verse 1, Paul starts with the grace of God. He wants them to know not first and foremost about Macedonians. He wants them to know about God's grace. And this grace has been given to these particular churches. And then in verse 2, he starts to tell you where that grace shows up. It shows up in a severe test of affliction matched by abundant joy. It shows up by extreme poverty, verse 2, matched by overflowing wealth of generosity. It shows up when these people, afflicted, impoverished, give not only according to their means, but beyond their means. Verse 3. See what he's doing? He's piling up adjectives. He's speaking almost in hyperbole here. It's not just that they are 
afflicted. It's severe affliction. It's not just that they're knowing joy in their their affliction. It's abundant joy, overflowing joy. It's not just that they're poor. It's extreme poverty, he says. And it's not just that they're generous in their poverty. It's that they are overflowing with this wealth of generosity. He's piling up things that don't go together and showing you in these Christians, in these churches, they go together. Maybe the most surprising thing about what he says is that they are begging him, verse 4, for the chance to give. They're begging him. Right, so we understand what it is to be begged to give, right? Anybody, any of you here who is an alum of, a, of any university knows what it's like to get those, those students calling you at dinner time from their phone bank, burrowed in wherever university they are, calling you asking for money. But it's almost like it's almost like these Macedonian churches have got a phone bank of their own. And every evening, about five or six o'clock, they're on the horn to Paul, hounding Paul, begging Paul for the chance to give. It flips what we think of as normal. And they're hounding him for the chance to give to people they've never met, in a place that they've never been, from an ethnicity and a culture that's about as far different from their own as could be. So what in the world is going on in Macedonia? What is Paul doing by trying to put these churches in front of us? I think on a surface level, we read over this model that he's giving us. And we might come to think that he's trying to shame them. And by extension, maybe to shame us. I think it's fair to say that he is trying to convict them by this example. But I think there's a much better way to describe what he's doing. I think what he's trying to do is to challenge their view of what's normal. If you're taking notes, you're under this model of generosity part. That's what I'd write down. Paul's trying to, through this model, Paul is trying to challenge their view of what's normal. I think what he's trying to do is to show them what's possible And to make them ask, how? He's trying to shift their view of what kind of generosity is possible. And to make them ask, how is this possible? One of the things that that, that we know about these Corinthians, just from the things Paul writes about them, and from what we know about the city where they lived in this time, is that they had issues with money. They were pretty affluent for that time. They had a lot. Paul refers to their abundance here in this, in this chapter. They had plenty of money. They were part of a city that, that was uh, full of ladder climbers. It was a city that was pretty new, had a lot of new money in it. There was chances to, to, to be upwardly mobile, sort of climb the social ladder and change the status you were born into. And that made them status obsessed. Everybody was looking for an edge. Everybody was looking at others to sort of get the read on what they should be. And Paul's letters to them are full of him sort of pushing back on them and their tendency to compare with one another and to try to one-up one another. I mean, in, in the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, there's even this section where Paul tells us, he tell, calls them out for using their dinners where they're celebrating communion, celebrating supposedly the unity that we have in who Christ has been for us in his death and his resurrection. They were using their dinner where they're supposed to be celebrating their unity to put on display how wealthy they were and to shame those who were less wealthy. 
they were bringing, you know, so it was potluck, but each family brings his own, I guess, in their potlucks. And they were bringing these opulent feasts and making it obvious based on what they were eating, what these others didn't have. So Paul writes to them there and says, look, you're acting like you're not one with these people. You're acting like you still have some sort of status to establish, some sort of unique ladder to, to show you're higher up on than, than theirs. In other words, the Corinthians were still, even as Christians, they were still allowing their views of what's normal to do with your money to be shaped by the city they lived in and what was normal there. They still hadn't fully been, had their sense of what's normal transformed by Jesus and his love for them. And in that way, we're a lot more like the Corinthians uh, than we are like most ancient cultures. I mean, if there's, if there's a, a group that Paul wrote to in the New Testament that, that we're like at all, it's the Corinthians. I mean, in some ways, we're like all, all people everywhere. We have the same sort of uh, human nature, right? And some, some things stay true in all times and places, but we have a lot of very strong similarities to what Paul was dealing with in Corinth. We're upwardly mobile. We tend to be status-obsessed, and there's no question that we're, by and large, affluent even if we're not affluent by American standards, even if by, you know, the other Americans that we live around and look at, we, we know we don't make a lot of money or enjoy a lot of perks. Certainly by world historical standards, we do. By other places in the world today, by most places in the world for all of human history. And what happens when you live in a place where affluence is normal is that there can be this unnoticed drift where we start to just take our cues for what's normal to do with your money from the people that we live around, from what others are doing with their money, rather than having our our, our sense of what's normal shaped by who Jesus is and what he's done. We can think about generosity, in other words, as something that we do out of our surplus, out of what's left over, at the same time that our sense of what's left over shrinks, gets tighter and tighter. Let me say more about what I mean here. Let me say more about what I mean. One of the things that that wealth can do to you over time is, again, change what you think of as, as normal, what you think of as just being part of the culture that you live in, where your sense of what you need grows to fit whatever you have. There's this really fascinating book I came across recently called Passing the Plate. It's a book by, uh, by Christian Smith, uh, Michael Emerson. This is, these are a couple of sociologists. They are part of this study for the Center of American Religion or something like that out of the University of Notre Dame. They study all sorts of different things about American Christians and what American Christianity is like and compare it to different times and places in America and other places in the world. And a few years ago, they wrote a book about how American Christians spend their money, specifically how American Christians are or are not generous and why. What they found is really, really interesting to me and convicting to me. So sometimes you hear it said that, that, that American Christians give more, that Americans in general give more money away than, uh, than many other Western industrialized countries. And they say that's true. And that American Christians 
give more money away than even Americans who are not Christian. And by and large, that pattern is true. The religious people, uh, studies show, are giving away more, a higher percentage of their money than, than people who don't affiliate with, with any particular religion. So they don't push back on that. They say, yep, that's true. But their, what their book found and what it tries to explain is how relatively little we give. Here's what, here's what they say in the introduction. What matters is not that the Christian glass is a bit more full than the non-religious glass or the glass of, a more, sec, of more secular nations. So that's not the standard. What matters more is that the Christian glass is nearly empty relative to its normal capacity. They found that People who describe themselves as committed Christians, they have a category for what that means that I won't pass on. Let's give them their category. Committed Christians in America earn annually, this was a few years ago, something like $2.5 trillion. That if they were their own country, they would be eligible for membership in the G7 group of nations. But that the average gift from American Christians, that same group, is approximately 3% of their income, and that that is boosted significantly by some really big givers at the top. That actually what they found was it was a huge number of Christians give nothing. And their question was, why? The point of this book was not to beat up on Christians for not giving as much as they should, but to ask, what's going on there? Why do we, being so wealthy, give so relatively little? They give a whole bunch of, of different possible explanations, but the one that really convicted me that I'm sitting with I wonder if it'll strike you. One of, the, one of the reasons they pointed to, that they think for, for why, based on their surveys and their interviews, uh, we give less than we do, or less than we could, is that we live with a sort of perceived inability to give more. A perceived inability to give more. Now, I'm not speaking to, about our church, and I'm not speaking about any one of you, and before I say anything more, I want to emphasize that this is a matter on which Christians are free to do as the Lord leads them. We're going to talk a lot about that next week because Paul says exactly that in chapter 9. And I want to emphasize that there's no question there are times in our lives where we experience financial hardships that change what we would do if we had more freedom. And nothing about Smith's book and nothing about what I say here changes that. So I'll trust the Spirit to minister to you if you're feeling any shame whatsoever this morning about an inability to give. That exists, and you should know Christ is for you, and you are not what you give. That said, there's also a tendency, I think, that we can't not address for fear of, 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 uh, of shame. A tendency that, that I have noticed in my own life, and maybe you have too. And that is for our perceived need to shift on us over time to where with this built-in assumption that I only give out of my surplus, I end up giving less and less percentage-wise because I believe my surplus is shrinking. What they talked about was the fact that, that, uh, that oftentimes we build our lives around certain expenses that we think of as sort of pre-choice expenses, you know, big things like housing and cars, the kind of things that are built into our you know, monthly non-negotiable spending habits. That those sorts of, when, when we're looking around and getting our norms for, say, what size house we need from other people we're living around, rather than from, say, world averages about square footage per person, that it just happens over time that our, our standards and expectations shift. 
what affluence does is, is, is gradually shift what you think you need. So that, you know, if you live now, so, I mean, many of you, I wonder, if, if you look back to where you were 10 years ago, I wonder if you could have imagined then having what you have now. If you would feel, if you would even wonder, like, how would I even spend that much 10 years ago? If you can imagine your 10-year-ago self. But I wonder how, if you feel like you have enough now. When you're thinking about, again, when you're, when you're thinking about how much square footage you need for a family of five, you don't typically make that judgment based on world averages of square footage per person. You make it based on what's normal in your circle and what your friends have, what your coworkers have. Same goes for how much should be spent on entertainment or cars or food or vacations or whatever else. And, and when what's around us sets our pace, when it sets what's normal for us, we can find ourselves making these upstream decisions or commitments that are locked in and immovable and make us feel like we don't have the freedom to give when we actually do. Being part of a culture of affluence for the Corinthians and for us can change our view of what's normal without us even recognizing it. So Paul, through this model that he's giving us, is not trying to beat us up. He's not trying to cause us shame. He's trying to shake up our sense of what's normal. He's trying to pull us out of the stream we've just been drifting along with, carried along, to show us that there is another way that we might not have even considered that's in front of us, too. He's trying through this model to shake up our sense of what's possible and then to make us ask, how? How is it possible for people to actually give with overflowing generosity out of extreme poverty? How is it possible to have joy in severe affliction? He raises questions so that he can give us an answer. He's trying to make us, I think what, he's, I really, what I think he's trying to do is make us want what they have. I think he's showing us these Christians who are living with a freedom we might not have realized is even possible out there. The kind of freedom that doesn't live in slavery to circumstances. Not that you should be more like the Macedonians and aren't you ashamed you're not more like the Macedonians, but rather, wouldn't you like to be like these Macedonians who are joyful in affliction who are generous in their poverty? Don't you want that kind of resilience? Don't you want to know that kind of grace in your life? Paul's wanting to create a sense of desire in us by this model, and then he wants to satisfy it by what he says next. That's the model for generosity. The heart of this passage is in verses uh, 8 and 9, especially verse 9, where he points us to the motive for generosity. The model sets up the main point. And if you're taking notes under the heading, the motive for Christian generosity, I wanted to just give it to you in a br briefly and unpack it in two steps, okay? I'm going to give it to you briefly, and then I'm going to unpack it, pull from the text to unpack it in a couple of steps. The motive that separates Christian generosity from all other generosity, the only motive that can enable the kind of radical giving from poverty that the Macedonians were enjoying is radical dependence on the grace of God. That's it. Radical dependence on the grace of God. 
Now, I've said that's, that's the answer. I want to unpack it in two different steps. So let me quickly do that. Radical dependence on the grace of God. That's your only path to the kind of freedom these Macedonians are living with. Now, let me unpack it in two steps. To know this radical dependence that is the motive for, for unbelievable generosity. First, you've got to forget about self-sufficiency. I think the beginning of Paul's answer about why these Macedonians give the way they do, it's built into what Paul says about them. Remember, back at the top of the chain, back in verse 1, when he sets all this up, his subject is not the Macedonians, it's the grace of God. Look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. That's what I'm telling you about. Now, yeah, it's been given among the churches in Macedonia, and here's what those churches in Macedonia are like, but the subject is still God and His grace. What they show us is what it looks like to depend on God and His grace. What they show us is what's possible when you forget about self-sufficiency. It's also in verse 5 where Paul says that these Christians have given themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul didn't come to them first asking for their money. They devoted themselves to God. They gave everything they had to Him. They saw themselves in light of His commitment to them first. And then from that dependence on God, they give to him. Now, here's what I think Paul is showing us. He's pointing us to the source of their freedom. It comes from staking everything on God's provision. These Macedonians knew they were not their own. They knew they belonged to God, that they were his to do with as he wills. They knew that it was all or nothing for them. Either he would provide for them or they would go hungry. They had no illusions that they could provide for themselves. And what happens a lot of times with affluence, like like what the Corinthians lived with and what what many of us live with, is that you, you have enough money and resources to actually start to think that maybe you're self sufficient. You start to stress over your future and whether you'll have enough. You start to carry on your own shoulders and the tension on your own neck muscles. The financial solvency of your family. You start to live as if it's even in the ballpark of possibility for you to provide everything you're going to need. But when you have nothing, when you know extreme poverty like these Macedonians did, you're under no illusions. You are clearly dependent on God for everything or you have nothing. You're given over to him, staking yourself to his goodness and his power and his trustworthiness. So what that looks like is that whether you keep what you have or give it away, it doesn't change your position at all. You're completely dependent on him if you keep that money. You're completely dependent on him if you give that money away. And you're not changing your situation one way or the other. That's what the Macedonians knew because they were impoverished. They had no illusions that they could provide for themselves. Affluence sometimes blinds us to that truth. Paul's trying to shake us out of it and show us there's freedom that comes from knowing it's all or nothing, all about God's grace or all about our poverty. You've got to forget about self-sufficiency. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. There's a second thing. This This is the heart of it. This is what everything is built to. Motive for Christian generosity, what separates it from all other forms of generosity. What empowers us to radically depend on God's grace 
is a focus on Jesus. In verses 7 and 8, Paul gets to his ask. He calls on the Corinthians to finish what they started. They'd started to take the collection. They had good intentions. He wants them to finish it off. He wants them to go ahead and, and move ahead with it. So he asked them in verses 7 and 8 to, to excel in this act of grace. Come on, step up. You've got, the, you've got the resources. If Paul were going to guilt them into it, if Paul were going to appeal to their pride, if Paul were going to make them feel like they needed to one-up these Macedonians, this is where he'd do it. But look where he goes instead. Why should they give? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He hasn't point to them to somebody else's model and say, go, be like them. He points them to how God has loved them in Christ and said, why wouldn't you give? Look what's been given to you. Why wouldn't you depend on the grace of this God? He didn't even spare his own son. Paul aims at their heart with the gospel not at their wills with some sort of shame or pride appeal. Paul knows better than to try to change people's behavior over the long haul by shame or pride. He just points them to Jesus, and I want to do the same for you. Verse 9 is one of the most beautiful descriptions of the gospel you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. When Paul tries to get up a collection for some Christians in need, he turns to the incarnation. He turns to some high-level theology to try to motivate them. He turns to what we know as the heart of the gospel, which you might describe as the greatest redistribution of wealth the world has ever seen. Earlier, Matt read from Philippians chapter 2. It's a wonderful parallel to what Paul says here in verse 9. Philippians chapter 2 imagines back to the time before Jesus, who existed as part of the Godhead for all of eternity, became part of history with a body just like ours. In that time before he took on flesh, he enjoyed things that are, are beyond the ability of our minds to understand. The only problem with Paul's example is that it's so abstract and difficult to put into our, our minds and our hearts. But I'm still going to work at it, all right? So bear with me. What Jesus enjoyed, what he enjoyed by right, was the kind of power none of us will ever know. A kind of power to speak and have something new pop into existence. The kind of power that spoke this world and us into being. The kind of power to which no one ever says no. Think of him in his human body, as limited as mine, as limited as yours, needing sleep, needing food to keep going, not having the ability to lift anything he wanted to as a carpenter. Jesus tried to pick things up and couldn't. Imagine what that would feel like if you had in your consciousness memory 
of the same power that spoke and had the world come into being. Think of his glory. The glory that he had before the world began with his father. Glory as, as a, a, an acknowledgement. Glory being the acknowledgement of something's beauty and power and preciousness. Glory as affirmation, celebration of something's wonder. And think of what he had for all of eternity with his father being perfectly acknowledged for his glory. And then imagine him here living a human life, most of which was lived out in obscurity, filling carpentering orders. Think of him even when he comes on to the scene in public in his ministry. Jesus comes onto the scene for the last several years of his life, doing ministry, going around. And some people worshipped him. Some people came after him wanting to see more of his power, more of the miracles that he'd been doing around. But, but not most people. Most people rejected him. This, this God, whose conscious memory included an eternity of absolute, infinite glory with his Father, knew nothing but rejection. He was driven out of the world, rejected by his people, rejected by the ones he came to save, rejected by the powers that be whom he put in place, rejected ultimately by his own father. Think of the treasure that he enjoyed in God's presence. Psalm 16 is one of my favorite psalms, and it talks about the pleasure that's enjoyed in God's presence forevermore at his right hand. The greatest treasure that the world knows is something that we haven't experienced. We can't even imagine it, but the Bible's clear and consistent. The greatest treasure to be known is the direct presence of God. Jesus had that with his Father forever. And he came to earth specifically to be separated from this Father whose presence was everything to him. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He became rejected, shamed, mocked, and scorned so that you could be embraced, brought in, taken home, affirmed by the God who made you. He was separated from the God whose presence was everything to him so that you could know the direct and immediate presence of that God for all of eternity. He who was rich became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the gospel is that because of Jesus, we have untouchable treasure. We have a treasure that had belonged to him and has now been given to us. 
in a place where Jesus himself told us moths can't eat it away, rust can't destroy it, and not, no thief could ever steal it. He has already purchased for us everything we need for happiness, for fulfillment, for security. So what is Paul saying here? You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's yours because of him. You know what he had to give to give it to you. So knowing who you are already in him, why don't you hold on to what you have? Why wouldn't you give to those in need? That's why to give. That's where we're going to end for this morning. Next week, we're going to come back and pick up where Paul talks about how to give. How to give to one another, to those who are in need in a way that fits the model that Jesus ultimately has set for us. That flows out of his grace to our need. Let's pray that God will help us to see it. Father, we, uh, we thank you for being willing to speak to us. You've done so, so clearly. Thank you for speaking to us, not a word of judgment, but a word of hope and peace and life. Thank you that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for us. Now we pray that you would help us to bring by your spirit, by your power, to bring that truth, that grace into every area of our lives, even our pocketbooks. To live as if we have a treasure we can't get rid of that can never be taken from us. Help us to be faithful in applying the truth of what you've done for us in Jesus. There's so much in us that resists it. Overcome that, we pray by grace. In Jesus' name, amen.